I don't think advertising is a good model for TikTok or any kind of new social media companies. Subscription and in-app purchases or kind of like social commerce is the next wave that's coming. Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pratish Sanyal and you're listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. My next guest on The 1% Project is Matt Lee, partner Progression Fund. Matt defines his career in venture capital as an early stage startup, starting from pre-seed to now at Product Market Fit with Progression Fund that he has built with Musical.ly and TikTok alums. He also shares what he learned about himself and the VC space. He talks about why Progression Fund is a consumer-focused fund when Y Combinator and the Greylocks of the world are bullish on B2B. How Generation Alpha, are digital natives, treat Alexa as a human and could turn out to be the richest generation ever. We also discuss the opportunities that foundations such as Bill and Melinda Gates bring for venture capital funds through the startups they are funding, which are solving hard problems with a bottom-up approach in emerging economies. Welcome, Matt, to The 1% Project. Thank you for having me. You have defined your career in venture capital as an early-stage company. Your pre-seed start in VC was launching a 67 million fund, and now you have product market fit, as you say, with Progression Fund, which you have launched with Musical.ly and TikTok alums. What's the framework behind thinking about your VC journey as a startup of you and what are the learnings? That's a really good question. As somebody who's been in the venture ecosystem, I've come across companies that all across different stages. And that gave me inspiration to kind of think about my own personal journey in venture in terms of stages as well. Because at each stage, you're working on something different. You have a different team, you have a different traction, you have different product. And things evolve over time and, and, and things can change. And potentially you have to pivot to achieve those um, wins and then make those changes. So I kind of thought about my career in venture in three different stages. Um, the first stage was my pre-seed round in New York. That's where I started. I joined a firm called Perec Ventures, focused on Series A uh, SaaS enterprise companies. And did that for about one and a half years. And really, at that point, it was really just building foundation and understanding how venture capital works, um, learning the business, um, building my network. I didn't get to do too much investing. I was mostly supporting uh, the partners on deals. And uh, I learned a lot about what I was interested in as well. I found out after one and a half years that Series A uh, wasn't the best fit for me, enterprise software. Uh, wasn't the best fit for me. But just like a startup, I was in search uh, of something different or something that was a good fit. And uh, I shifted my focus to pre-seed and seed stage. I believe that was a much better fit for me because I spent a lot of time on product because of my engineering background. And then I shifted the focus to consumer and frontier tech where I was more passionate about and I can really relate to and help those companies. And as a result, I did my seed round which was moving to from New York to, to, to the Bay Area in 2016. And I joined a firm called CRCM Ventures, 
spent three and a half years there. I was hired as a principal and then I became a partner in the fund. I helped raise fund three, helped launch it. Again, it's like I'm learning new things. I'm developing new skills. I'm learning the ecosystem. And now I have, I've actually had a chance to invest as well in the consumer and frontier tech space at preceded seed stage. And that was my seed round. And however, any time that you're joining a, an existing fund, some of those philosophies that you have may not come to fruition because you have partners uh, that have been there for a while. For me, really the graduation to my Series A uh, was starting my own fund, going through the process of fundraising myself with my new partners, the Musical.ly TikTok alumni, to launch something brand new with a new thesis, with a new thinking about how the world revolves and how the world works. And that's kind of like the, I guess, like the Series A journey and about that as finding my product market fit in the venture space. What are your learnings from the seed fund and the investments that you have made in companies like Bolt Bike, Lunch Club? Actually, for Bolt Bikes and Lunch Club, they were my angel investments. I did those when I was in between funds last year. There's a big difference in angel investing and venture investing that a lot of folks may not understand. And I could run through a few. The reason I invested in Lunch Club, I had a thinking, I had a thesis around people needed to build professional relationships and LinkedIn was becoming too transactional. And in-person meetings was kind of like the next wave uh, instead of just pinging somebody, messaging somebody on LinkedIn. Um, and Lunch Club provided a very good product that became like a weekly ritual for a lot of people that allowed you to connect and meet other people to build your network. But would I have done that from a seed fund perspective? I'm not sure because as an angel investor, you're really just spending most of your time thinking about whether this is whether you like the guy or not. I, I basically ticked off a few boxes and it was a small check from my personal on, on my personal side. And then same similarly with Bolt Bikes, it's I just really liked the founder and you know didn't really have to think about things like how big is the check size because it wasn't involved in the fund. It was just my personal investment. Didn't really think have to think about things like ownership and the traditional things that uh, you had to think about at a seed stage fund. What I learned from the one of the biggest things that I learned from uh, fundraising and 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 raising a sixty seven million dollar seed fund was one mistake that we made. we We actually raised the fund over three years. And the first year, the fund was fifteen million. Second year the fund was thirty million, and the third year the fund was sixty seven million. And that becomes kind of problematic, especially because of the early investments that you make, and they're not the size of those investments are not matched to the final fund size. Basically, the first, let's say the first 10 investments were like 150, 200K checks. Ownership-wise, they're probably like 1% of the pre-seed seed stage company. And But as the fund grew, that ownership, we needed, basically we needed more ownership to and write larger checks. The first 10 or, or companies were just kind of like wasted. That was a big learning for me. And that was uh, one of the reasons why for this new fund that I'm raising, we're only targeting 10 million. It's something that we can raise uh, in one year. It's something that we can deploy and manage quite well as well. And we can write like a 200K check and, and take a 2 to 4% ownership in early stage companies. 
I guess that that's probably the biggest learning in terms of managing a fund that I learned from from fundraising and and then and raising a seed fund. Progression fund, which is your next thing, is focused on the alpha generation. And in your hypothesis, you've mentioned that you think that this is going to be the richest generation of all the generations that have been till now. What is the the logic behind that? We're not just focused on generation alpha. It's one of the areas we're focused on. Our thesis is really around behavior change and what really drives behavior change. We identify three things. The first one is generational differences. Different generations use different platforms, have different behaviors, interact with technology in different ways, and generally will be a driver for a new platform to emerge. For example, Musical.ly really came from Gen Z girls. It was an aspirational platform. And, and by the way, Musical.ly launched in 2015, where Facebook has been around for almost 15 years. Snapchat's been around for, since 2010, about five years already. And people thought there wouldn't be another social hit, but it came out because it was completely focused on a new generation. It was focused on Gen Z, especially Gen Z girls. That's like first uh, part of our thesis. Second part is our uh, around emerging technologies and how they have an effect on people as well. For example, things like voice technologies, younger generations are now adopting voice technologies like Alexa and uh, um, Google Home. And some, some uh, talking to some of my friends who have who have kids, like two, three, two to five-year-old kids, some of these kids are giving, they, they believe technology like uh, Alexa is not just technology itself. It's almost like a human being, somebody they can talk to anytime, anywhere. They'll go to a friend's place and then they'll just be asking about Alexa uh, questions. So that kind of behavior is, is because of these emerging technologies, people have new interactions and new behaviors. And the third thing we identified was historical events have a big impact on behaviors as well. I point to in China in 2003 with SARS, uh, that's where Alibaba and JD.com really started taking off and building the e-commerce empire in, in China uh, because people had to shop online um, because they were locked down. And similarly with this, I guess, this historical event, COVID-19, it's now really affecting not just China, but the whole world. So we believe all three of these things are converging now to create this moment in time where behaviors are shifting across all generations and across all geographies. And Gen Alpha is one that we're focusing on now in terms of our early thinking, because it's something that's very new and not a lot of people have know about it. And the reason we think Gen Alpha is potentially one of the richest generations is that firstly, they're growing up with tech as, as young as one years old. So Basically, they're playing with devices, they're playing with voice technologies, 5G is coming out, they're probably going to be playing with AR and VR, maybe even autonomous driving, autonomous vehicles. Their interaction with technology is at a very young age. They'll be the most tech literate and likely they're going to be hacking solutions for everything as they, as they grow up and get a bit older. That's the first part where we think they're the most tech literate. And, and the second thing is where we believe that this historical event has debunked the notion that change only happens uh, over time and not overnight. And because of COVID, uh, literally overnight, people are wearing masks. Overnight, people are staying at home. We believe that because Gen Alpha is witnessing this at a very young age, 
they will be the one generation that will be like anything can be done, anything can be possible, anything can change overnight, and they're going to find a way to hack and build it. But that's the reason why we think they're going to generate a lot of wealth, they're going to generate a lot of knowledge that's going to drive them forward because of some of the things they're experiencing now and because of technology and the differences with some of the other generations. What do you think are the possible innovations or advancement that the consumer tech industry is still to explore? Because if you look at the major funds specifically based in Silicon Valley, Greylock Partners and others, they have definitely tended now towards more on the B2B side. And they see that B2C is flattening or has yep. flattened. What is your take in the consumer space? That's a great question. And we have noticed that in the last five years or that SaaS is really just enterprise SaaS, especially is really picking up. And, and you can see it in the YC companies and Y Combinator. Nowadays, they have about 200 companies. And I, use, I always use YC as a good indicator of what's going on in the market. And for the last two or three years, uh, or maybe it's a two or three batches, most of the companies have been enterprise SaaS companies. I'd say probably 75% and 25% consumer companies. So why are we um, focused on consumer? And, and, and I guess like where are their opportunities is the, is the question. The reason uh, definitely because we're, we're focused on consumers because um, we were the team that built the biggest social media network in the last five years. That's kind of like our bread and butter. And we see some trends that are um, changing, especially for Gen Z and Gen Alpha, where we believe there's going to be a next generation of platforms that's less focused on these one-to-many platforms, one-to-many broadcast platforms like a, like a Facebook, like an Instagram, or even a TikTok. And we believe there's going to be a wave of collaboration platforms where people are co-creating and co-collaborating together to create content. So that's kind of like starting to think ahead where I guess like new platforms will emerge in the next five, you know, three to five years, we'd say, and kind of like take over from uh, TikTok, potentially with Gen Alpha driving it or younger Gen Z driving it. So that's the first part. The part around, is, and this applies more for the US, if you look at comparison between US and China in, in terms of consumer investing over the last, um, I'd say, 30 years or so, we believe the first wave came out in 93 when the internet came online. There was a rush to bring everything online. We had companies like Amazon, you had companies like Google emerge uh, during that time frame. And then if you compare it to China, China was a little bit later. The internet came online in 95 and then companies started emerging like alibabaj.com in 99 and they didn't really take off until 2003. So you can argue that China was probably like three years, maybe even five years behind the US at that stage during wave, wave one or cycle one. And then cycle two came when the smartphone came out in December 2007, that's when the iPhone came out in the US. And, and then there was a rush to appify everything. Let's put everything on, on the app store essentially. Uh, and then you had companies like Instagram, you had companies like Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, all these big companies emerge around that time. And then if you look at China, the first iPhone was sold in China in 2010. Again, it was like two years behind. Uh, and then the big companies didn't start emerging until 2012, where ByteDance uh, was launched. And Musical.ly actually launched in 2013. 
thirteen, but not as musically as an education short video company called Zilla, based out of Shanghai. And then they had to pivot to music, musically twenty fifteen. So again, in the cycle two, there's there's been a lag. China was about two to three years behind the U.S. But if you look at the last five years in China, and、uh, we believe for a few reasons, China has now overtaken the U.S. in terms of consumer innovation. Just things in the last five years have moved quickly with WeChat, with democracy of payments, basically through Tencent Pay and Alipay, just much easier for people to interact over mobile. You had you had companies like Pinduoduo, you had companies like Mofo, Obike,、uh, Mobo, Ofo, Mobike, and and obviously Musically came from from China and ByteDance came from China as well. And、uh, you had live stream shopping. You had Taobao Live emerged three years ago and is now. Like blowing up, and a lot of that has not come over to the U.S. yet. The bike stuff has, musically TikTok has, but musically TikTok is still about three years behind Douyin in China in terms of monetization. And now you've got Bird, you've got Lime Bike here in the U.S. Obviously, you can't take a Chinese com、uh, concept and just like plant it in the U.S. You still have to localize it because there's some subtle differences between Americans and、uh, Chinese people. And we believe there's going to be a lot of learnings from China that hasn't come over here to the U.S. yet, which we can explore. And one of them is live stream shopping. And because of COVID, a lot of these retailers and small business that had to shut down. And、uh, live stream is now really picking up in the U.S. with live stream shopping. There's Amazon is introducing Amazon Live. Instagram is introducing in Instagram Live. We have a portfolio company called Pop Shop Live that's、uh, doing live stream shopping and basically Shopify for live streaming. Essentially, that's doing really well. <clears throat> basically, we're trying to take some inspiration from from Asia, from China, and then looking for opportunities and see if they can be、um, adapted to to a U.S. market. Some of my friends in mainland China, they would say, and mainland China's tech ecosystem and Silicon Valley's ecosystem. Are almost equal, equally mature. That mainland China is still exploring and on the tip of the iceberg of B two C, and Silicon Valley is potentially has crossed the curve and moved on to B two B. But you do see that there is, as you mentioned, collaboration. A lot of B two C businesses will be made adaptable to the US market. That could be coming from China or Asian and African countries. The other current news, which is potential TikTok acquisition by Oracle,、uh, let's see if that happens or not. How do you see this acquisition? Because Oracle is taking a very similar bet, like Microsoft did by taking over or buying LinkedIn, moving into the social media space. I don't know what what is the logic behind Oracle acquiring TikTok or their ambition of getting into social media. This is a really good question, Oracle. Really, Oracle. Besides being a big enterprise company, they do have Oracle Marketing Cloud, which does a lot of ad tech and obviously on the enterprise side. But that's where they can really benefit from partnering with with a、uh, TikTok. It's about TikTok as distribution, and Oracle as being the back end for as a marketing partner. It could be very powerful. But I don't think advertising is a good model for TikTok. Or any kind of new social media companies, subscription and in-app purchases, or kind of like social commerce, is the next wave that's coming. And Douyin in China is already 
partnered up with JD.com to provide live stream shopping on Douyin in China, and they're doing pretty well. The Oracle partnership with Walmart plus TikTok. Walmart's providing the supply of all the、um, products, and and then. TikTok as the distribution, and then Oracle as the backend kind of like personalization of products and marketing of products. That might work. The challenge would be big companies coming together, affecting the creative culture of a very aspirational platform like Musically TikTok. Is that going to have a big impact on them?、Uh, possibly. I'm still kind of、uh, waiting to see it happen and. And to see if it actually is going to turn out to be successful,、uh, a little bit skeptical、uh, here. I could see why Microsoft wanted to get and、uh, buy out LinkedIn because the customer base is potentially the same because they are selling to corporates and professionals. There is an overlap, but Oracle and the kind of generation that exists on TikTok, I don't know how <laughs> doesn't that, make sense. But who knows? Magic happens all the time. Yeah, who knows? Then and then、yeah. like Walmart stuff, like the the, the Gen Z want to want buy Walmart Walmart stuff. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, but again, you see that there is a part. The the Z- Gen Z is definitely buying things from Walmart. So maybe there is an overlap. And as you say, that the Alpha generation is going to be the richest. So everybody wants to get into their wallet share as soon as possible. Exactly. I was reading this and I found this interesting. Next decade is not going to be Amazon, Facebook, Google. But it would be coming out of the Bill and Melinda Foundation, and the take is that if you look closely at the kind of hard problems that they are solving, it comes clear that it is the best place to change human experiences, because the Fang companies, which is Facebook, Amazon, Google, are solving first world problems, impacting a population that is already aware and already has all the basic needs fulfilled. Yes, but the Gates Foundation is busy solving problems for a huge underserved population, and they are gathering a lot of press information and data from these kind of organizations and the work they are doing in Africa, Southeast Asia, and they're basically working bottom up, kind of a ecosystem, and the Fangs have actually done a top down. What do you think? Is this something which is Insightful, or this is where there could be an opportunity. I think that's really interesting. Actually,、uh, I haven't come across that, but I'm gonna look into it a little bit more. I, I actually do think there is some merit、uh, to that kind of thinking. A lot of the big tech, they're kind of building products and tech that's not really, I guess, like focused on making tech very human or using tech to. To drive humanity forward, kind of thing. So, using tech in very, I guess, like novel ways that's、uh, helpful for people. And and that's that's one of the things where a lot of these apps they kind of built in a way to to basically hog your mind share and to make you addicted. That you spend more and more time,、uh, waste more and more of your time inside the apps. But I do think there is some merit to thinking outside the box. And kind of rethinking how we design products that maybe serves a greater purpose and can be helpful to people. The power behind the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and some of these other, for example, like climate change focused funds, they can drive 
a lot of change forward and for a lot of people. And about as this relates to Gen Z and Gen Alpha, especially Gen Alpha, where they will be early adopters for for everything, and they will believe that change can happen. If you look at it, it seems that they're working on the same technologies and the same challenges, but bottom up, they're looking at health, they're looking at yep. finance, they're looking at polio vaccinations and schools. It is what we call in the advanced world, health tech, fintech, edutech. When you go to a third world country or an emerging market, you just don't see it like that. You just see that these are basic needs that needs to come to that kid who was born in an undesirable situation. We do not term it like that but yeah. at the same time as you said right the impact of the bill uh, and melinda gates foundation is huge and they have such a span that the collective information across these countries is very valuable to build an infrastructure and invest for these bottom-up products and services definitely definitely especially and then this is the thinking that that companies that are targeting some of these emerging countries that don't already have a lot of infrastructure in place can become very big because uh, if you look at the US, one of the reasons why change is difficult is especially around payments, these like banking systems, it's just layers and layers of infrastructure. It's hard to get people to move from you know, writing a check to, to mobile payments or even like online payments. Whereas like, you look at China, like in the last 10 years, it's just gone straight to mobile payments and that adoption just went through the roof but here in the u.s we're still writing checks i guess emerging economies where you could be the first one in and you're designing a and building a product that's serving a mass amount of people you could be a big big winner there three quick for rapid fire questions uh one word uh, or one sentence okay cool the hardest thing about your job that's a tough one um saying no one book or a blog that has changed your professional and personal outlook? It's, it's called the three-body effect. It's basically an engineer from China, and he wrote a book part-time, and it became the, one of the top-selling books, science fiction books in the last 10 years. Yeah. The idea behind it is that it's going to that thinking around, like a lot of these inspirations are coming from China in the last five, 10 years. And there's been zero science fiction from China until now. This piece of literature is like celebrated as this amazing thing over the last five years. So that's very inspirational for me. Your most favorite superhero? Iron Man. Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Have a good one.